listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Um, okay, so uh, Isaiah is chock full of things that we could talk about, and we skipped several chapters since last week. We were in Isaiah 2 last week, we're in Isaiah chapter 11 this week, and I just want to catch us up a little bit as to what's happening. Isaiah is a prophet of God to the people of God, so that means that Isaiah's words are from the Lord. His words are from the Lord to the Lord's people, and what we come to find out is that Of course, and we we see this throughout the Old Testament, all those books written before Jesus steps on to the planet, um, that the people of God, this this nation, Israel, is regularly found to be unfaithful to God, that God has been faithful to them time and time again, and yet that they have failed to be faithful in return. And there is, of course, consequences for that. And we're told about some of those in Isaiah, that Uh, the people of God will be subject to another nation, right? That they'll be conquered, that they'll be enslaved, that they'll be subjected to the rule of a nation called Assyria. A nation called Assyria. And we're told that that judgment of the Lord on the people of the Lord is righteous. That That it's happening according to the care and concern of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord over his people. And I want to just back up a little bit before chapter 11 so that we really see what the situation is as we arrive to this chapter 11, verse 1, where we hear about a stump that has a shoot growing out of it. And so if you'll just back up with me, if you have your Bibles to Isaiah um, chapter 10, so it should just be maybe one page over, um, Isaiah chapter 10, um, God, God makes a few promises, right? We've, we've been told that Israel will be subject to the Assyrians, but just a few short chapters later, God says, but guess what? I'll deal with the Assyrians too. And so this is what he says in verse 15 of chapter 10 about Assyria. He says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? He's talking about the axe being Assyria. This this tool that I am using for the judgment of Israel has no reason to boast, he says, because I am the one who's hewing with it. Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest, that is Assyria, and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. God is saying, this glorious nation, this powerful Assyria that has conquered my people, one day, one day, a child will be able to count those that remain.
keep reading in verse 20, there's a promise that as the Lord deals with the Assyrians, then there will be a remnant. There will be a people left over from Israel, from his people. It says, in that day, a remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. God's saying, God's saying, in all of this judgment and all of this stuff that I am working out, at the end of it, Israel will return to me. Israel will cease to lean on Assyria and it will lean on me in truth. Skip down to verse 27. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken. So Isaiah, on behalf of the Lord, is telling the people of Israel that, listen, it's going to be rough for a while. This nation of Assyria will conquer, it will burn, it will take, it will steal, it will usurp. And yet, there's a day coming when the burden of Assyria will depart from your shoulder, his yoke from your neck, because of the Lord your God who in spite of your unfaithfulness remained faithful to you. And in verse 33, he says this, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. So here's the irony, right? Here's the irony. At the beginning, or really right in the middle of chapter 10, we find out, that Assyria is an axe, and the Lord says, I'm going to cut the axe with an axe. And so what we get ultimately at the end of chapter 10 is this image of a forest of sort of Assyria and Israel really all cut. So I don't know if you've ever been out to a forest where there's been logging taking place, but for miles, right, you can just kind of see clear sight, clear sight line. There's no trees in the way and there's nothing but those little what? Little stumps, right? And where there was lush greenery and where there was fruit and where there was all these things, that's, that's all that remains. That's the image that we're being given here is this forest that has been cut to its root. And it's into that reality, the... the <laughs> The burning of sort of war and conquest and destruction and desolation and people having lost families and family members and everything else. It's into that image that then Isaiah says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That like in the middle of this imagery where there's, you imagine you, you can't see a tree for miles and all you see is stumps that just out of out of one of them, there's, a, there's this tiny little shoot. There's this little piece of greenery that, that appears out of what Isaiah calls the stump of Jesse. If you don't know the Bible, Jesse um, is the father of King David, who's a very significant person in Israel's uh, history. And we don't have a ton of time to go into it, but basically... We are told that from David's line, from the line of David's father, Jesse, the Messiah would eventually come. And so, again, God, through Isaiah, is telling the people, listen, it's going to look bad. 
It's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. It's going to look hopeless. But I am a faithful God. And so, from the stump of Jesse, a shoot will come forth. And then he tells us that this shoot will actually turn into a branch and that this branch will not only produce leaves and foliage, but that it will produce fruit. So what that means for us, brothers and sisters, is that, listen, uh, if a tree is unhealthy, it doesn't produce fruit. You can have an unhealthy tree that may have a leaf here or there, but it's not, it's not going to produce fruit for you. And what, what Isaiah is telling us is that this tree that was a stump from which there's just right now, all you can see is tiny little shoots, that from that there will grow a strong, healthy tree that will, in fact, one day return to producing fruit, that it will be healthy, good, well. And so what is this shoot? What, what is this hope that God is promising to his people? Well, we find out that it's a person in the next verse, right? This is what it says. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So we come to find out that the hope of Israel, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, is a person upon whom the very Spirit, capital S, Spirit of God, will rest. Rest meaning dwell upon Him. What else? The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is how the Spirit expresses itself in this person who is to come. The Spirit will express itself in wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is what this person will look like when he comes. And then it tells us that this person, his delight, the thing that he rejoices in, the thing that enlivens him, the thing that makes him smile, the things that gives him joy and life will be, get this, the fear of the Lord. And some of us are like, wait, wait a minute. How does, how does one delight in fear? And what we have to know is that when we're reading the word fear in the Bible, there can be sort of multiple understandings depending on the context. But in this context, what we have to understand is that fear means that there is a reverent awe that characterizes this person. It's someone who understands who God is, who esteems him appropriately. So he's not overly dismissive, right? In the sense of feeling like he can disregard God's law or what God has called him to do. He's reverent in his posture towards the Lord and it delights him to be so. Now here's the thing, for, for some of us that, that, that are like me, you have some authority issues and thinking of God in that way as someone who should be feared um, maybe strikes a nerve. Well, may I just gently remind you that it is this God who is speaking to us through Isaiah's words this morning um, who is able Chapter 10, verse 18 says, to destroy both body and soul. I don't know about you, um, 
there's some reverent awe of that, right? That should produce in us some understanding of how, just how powerful, just how holy, just how real, just how holy this God is. And it should delight us. It should delight us to know that He is that powerful, that He is that holy, that He is that righteousness. And get this, Isaiah's going to tell us why. We should delight in that reality. It goes on to say this, He shall not judge by what His eyes see or decide disputes by what His ears hear. But with righteousness, He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Why should we delight like this person in the fear of the Lord? Well, because we come to find out that it is the fear of the Lord that inspires or that brings about this kind of character, this kind of leadership, this kind of person who is able to look beyond what the eyes see, to judge beyond what the ears hear, and to make righteous judgments. Here's essentially what this text is telling us. It's telling us that this God of Israel that he is sending forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a, a person upon whom the Spirit will dwell, and because that Spirit dwells upon him, he will be able to make perfect judgments. If we listen, the American justice system, for all of its flaws, is the crown jewel of justice systems in, in the world today. It is the most equitable that we know. And at the same time, we are well aware that it fails time and time again. And God tells us that this judge who is coming, that this judge whom God is sending will be able to judge rightly once and for all, that justice will be brought to bear perfectly. And that it doesn't matter how well you dress yourself up, it doesn't matter how eloquently you speak, it doesn't matter how good your defense is, it doesn't matter whatever you think you can present, He sees right through it. He knows better than what He hears from us. And for some of us this morning, again, that, that, that might make us a little bit uncomfortable, but I want us to understand that there's real hope in that reality, that that's really good news for us. Some of us are like, wow, that makes me really vulnerable. God can see through my act. God can see through whether I'm living into who and what he's called me to be as a follower of Jesus or whether I'm just putting on an act. He can see through that. He can see through my, my acts, my performances. He can 
understand beyond the words that I say. And at the same time, the wonder and the glory of this verse is that that means that nobody gets away with anything in the end. And so while it makes us personally vulnerable before the Lord, knowing that He sees in this way, knowing that He understands in this way, knowing that He's capable of looking beyond those things, it makes for a wonderful promise of a day when no bad deed goes unpunished. Meaning we can look at all of the evil in the world that's around us. We can look at all the brokenness in the world that's around us. We can look at all of the brokenness that we have experienced like that we've been on the receiving end of, and go, you know what? There's coming a day. There's coming a day when the one who sees beyond the facade will make righteous judgment. There's coming a day where all of the illustrious and the eloquent defenses of man will come crumbling down before the righteous judge. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. It should make us long for the day when Jesus comes. Because if it, if it wasn't clear initially, the, this man upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests is this Jesus who came 2,000 years ago. It is him. The Bible tells us as much in Luke chapter 4. When Jesus stands before a crowd of people, opens up the book of Isaiah, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me to proclaim good news to the poor and to set free the oppressed. It's God Himself, the Father at Jesus' baptism, descending upon Jesus in the form of, the do of a dove and doing what? Resting upon Him. Saying, this is my beloved Son in whom am I am well pleased and thus empowering Him for His ministry that would follow. His ministry of making equity for the meek of the earth, righteously judging the poor, striking the earth with the rod of his mouth, by his truth upending the world that we live in, shaking the very foundations of how we lived by his proclamation that righteousness was his, not only in practice, but in his ability to extend his righteousness to us. tells us, goes on to tell us that when this man comes, when this man Jesus makes his presence known among us, that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. Now listen, there's a, a number of ways that this could be interpreted, and I think both are equally valid. But the, but the first one I, I, I want to discuss very briefly is really the, the one that falls sort of most in line with this context, and that's, that's this. The people of God, 
are historically an oppressed people. Historically. I mean, whether it's in Egypt, whether it's here from Assyria, where it's later, whether it's later on in Babylon, right? The people of God are historically an oppressed people. And they've been attacked by predators on all different sides. And here Isaiah is telling us that at some point, these predators will be toothless. They won't be predators anymore. But here's what's even crazier. It's not only that they won't be predators. It's not not only that they won't sort of just be in opposition to one another by virtue of our nature, right? By virtue of good and evil and all, all of those things. But it's that they'll actually like belong together. And and so here's what God is saying about this new new kingdom, this new place ruled by this new king. That's that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, so, so irrespective of lineage, irrespective of whether we are, in fact, descendants of Jesse or David, will experience the righteousness and the faithfulness of this Jesus who has come. And in verse 9 it says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And so here's what that means, ultimately. That upon Jesus' coming, the people of God will experience Jesus' protection in the place where Jesus dwells, in His holy mountain. And so for some of us, the question for me anyway was, okay, so where is that place, right? Is that like a a physical location that I need to go to because I want to be there. I want to be in the place where I don't have to worry anymore about oppression. I want to be in the place where I don't have to worry anymore about unrighteous judgment. I I want to be in the place where I don't have to worry about hurt, personal injury, be it emotional or physical. I want to be in that reality. Where is that place? And this is ultimately how that verse concludes. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So here's the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's not only, it's not only that we can come before the Lord in all of our brokenness, in all of our shame, knowing that He sees it all and that He still accepts us, because of the righteous work of Jesus on our behalf. It's not only that. It is that and the reality that we will one day go to a place where we are finally and fully released from all of that brokenness, where we are made whole, where we are made perfect, and where we experience none of the effects of our sin, none of the effects of death, none of the effects of our brokenness, none of those things. No hurt shall be present in the holy mountain of the Lord, and the holy mountain of the Lord in that day will be 
the whole of the earth. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then it tells us that in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. All of this, brothers and sisters, is pointing is pointing us to a time not only that Jesus came and fulfilled, but to a time when Jesus will return and make all things new. It's pointing us to a time where the full and final resting place of Jesus will be with his people. This is the vision. This is the vision of John in Revelation. Right? I saw the new heavens and the new earth. I saw the dwelling place of God being made among men. This is what is coming for us. And so this Advent, I would, I would want for us to, to really celebrate and live into to, to two, two things, two promises that we see not only given to us by God, but ultimately fulfilled for us in Christ. And that is that it, it boils down to one word, we can have peace. We can have peace. And we can have it in two places or two ways. First, let me just speak to, speak to us as individuals. For some of us, again, I mentioned it earlier, the thought, the thought that Jesus sees beyond what is external. Right? The thought that Jesus knows what's behind that, that Jesus knows everything that you've ever done, everything that you've ever thought, everything that's ever been done in private, everything that's ever, uh, he's seen it all. He sees beyond it, is deeply uncomfortable. Like if that, were, if that were anybody else, if that were any one of you, I would be mortified even right now as I'm up here because I know I'm well aware of the depth sin and darkness and brokenness within myself. And yet, brothers and sisters, I can stand before you today and I can talk about holiness and this great and glorious God and I can call you to be, to be mindful of Him and to have a right and healthy fear of Him, not because I'm perfect at it, but because God has given me peace in spite of my sinfulness. And let me, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. The Bible tells us that this Jesus who came to establish peace did in fact do that for us. That he's established peace between me and God. He's established peace between you and God. How is that? Well, it was by the righteous life of Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus lived his life perfectly, that he never once transgressed upon any law of God, that he lived completely and wholly perfect unto the Lord. Why is that important? Because Jesus goes on to die a sinner's death, which makes no sense, right? He's the only person ever who has earned the well-done, good and faithful servant of the Most High God. He's the only person who before God's holiness stands uncondemned. And yet he dies a sinner's death. The Bible goes on to tell us that that's because in that moment, Jesus t- 
took our unrighteousness upon himself and gave to us his righteousness. That's the exchange that takes place at the cross. That's why we look at that moment in history and our minds are in some ways blown by what took place at that moment. Our unrighteousness placed onto Jesus and holy and fully condemned as he cries to the Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we receive his perfect life, his perfect righteousness in the cross. And then three days later, after his death, Jesus rises in victory over Satan, sin, and the grave. And by his resurrection, we know that the check of Jesus' life cleared. It passed. It's not counterfeit, but it's real. And that same Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and reigns and rules over the heavens. And in fact, Hebrews tells us that it is that Jesus who took, not only knows our sin, but then took our sin and then was victorious over our sin that is now in the ears of God the Father all day and night for you and for me pleading on our behalf. Saying, that one's mine, that one's mine. I paid for that one. Be gracious. Remember your promises. Be faithful to him. He is one of ours. She is one of ours. And so you can have peace before the Lord. We can be open. We can be vulnerable about our sin with one another because God's already seen it all. And he calls us his treasure. How wild is that? That someone who could see the very darkest parts of you would say, you're my inheritance. That peace that we long to have within ourselves. That, that peace that we long to have with all of the brokenness and all of the tangled knots that are inside of us. We can have today, right now, because of this Jesus who has seen it all and who judges you in him righteous. And the peace that we long for in the world, this is the second way that we can have peace, or the second way that I long to experience peace, that is coming in Christ. There is coming a day where all of the injustices that we see, and guess what? We see a lot of them these days, don't we? Turn on the news for five minutes. Just five. And it will almost bring you to tears. The glorious good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that we have peace with God, but there will also be peace and justice and restitution made between us. There will be no deed that is not one of two things, forgiven entirely, completely, gloriously by the sufficient, full, complete work of Jesus on the cross for that, or righteously condemned, judged, and ultimately cast off according to the promises of this holy powerful, mighty, wise, generous,
just God. And so we can cry and we can shed tears over the world that is with joy for the world that is to come because Christ came and he is coming again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Again, God, just so grateful to be gathered together as your people called by your name. Lord, we have done nothing to earn that reality. Nothing. Lord, the work that you accomplished in Jesus is astounding and glorious and wonderful, and we praise you for it this morning. Thank you, God, that we can have peace within ourselves, knowing, God, that the good work that you began in us, you will complete because you are faithful, because you have said you would complete it. And we can look at the brokenness and the devastation of our world and we can put our hands to work. We can put our hands to the plow knowing, God, that you are bringing this world to a place where the knowledge and the fear of you will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we long for and we look to that day where there will be no more hurt in all your holy mountain. And we rejoice that we will be there with you because Jesus saw fit. Jesus saw fit to be made into the form of a man, become obedient even unto death, that we might experience life with him, life with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.